What makes a revolution? And how many have happened in your lifetime? Which ones are coming next? I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is important, not important, science for people who give a shit. Hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. You can find the email version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com slash newsletter. It is January 24th, 2023, and we're back and all new. This week, we're going to explore the revolutions of my lifetime, how they got us to where we are today, and where they may lead us in the years and decades to come. A quick PSA. Any is 100% independent and mostly reader-supported. The newsletter is free to all, but to support our work, connect with other shit-givers, get my tools, book, and rec- music recommendations, and attend exclusive live events, please consider becoming a paid member. Visit importantnotimportant.com membership to become a member today. Folks, here's your action steps of the week. I love donating to Donors Choose so much. You can support teachers who need so much more support and should never have to front the cost for essential supplies. You can buy books, crayons, maps, even a 3D printer. Number two, understand where your power is coming from, like right now, with electricity maps. Number three, from the southern border of the U.S. to Ukraine, East Africa, and Palestine, Doctors Without Borders provides medical humanitarian assistance uh, to folks who need it the most. You can set up a new monthly donation there. Last, volunteer to text or call with the Environmental Voter Project, an incredibly effective movement to identify millions of non-voting environmentalists and turn them into consistent voters. All right, let's get down to it. What revolutions have gone down in your lifetime? When I asked myself that question shortly after reading a think piece on the almost certainly imminent biotech revolution, also almost certainly copy and pasted from the last 10 almost biotech revolutions, I first had to ask, wait, how old am I? And then, really? And then, what does it mean when people say revolution? For these purposes, which are pretty narrow and entirely of my own invention, I don't mean some single moment in time, um, unless it was a bellwether for something bigger. And I don't mean the revolutions that have necessarily or most intentionally directly impacted me. When I think revolution, I imagine a building up of something that has affected most people directly or indirectly. So that's a threshold I'm going to use today. So the list we're going to talk about today is in no way comprehensive. I'm just a generalist bonehead who's definitely missed some significant items, so bear with me. I am 40, though, however, even though I feel like I'm 99. So the point is, I'm going to use 1982 as my starting point. Your mileage, of course, may vary. Now, you might be loyal reader or listener, and you might be saying, isn't any about looking forward to understand where we are and where we might be going so we can build a better today and tomorrow for everyone? That's correct. But to do so, it is helpful to look back a little bit to understand how we got here and what's underway and what might be brewing for better or worse. Because the more we have our eye on these currents, the more we've seen how mature ones have settled in, the more we can strike at the root, as they say, to influence them. So for simplicity's sake, I've broken these revolutions down into three classes. Number one, mature. These are revolutions that are basically inseparable from society now. So we understand them. They're very much a part of this world now. And we're still feeling the after effects, whether designed or not, because uh, they've been a part of the system and so many different systems for so long. 
Number two, in process. So these are more recent, more nascent, or more gradual revolutions we're still fighting over or struggling with or haven't built out yet, which we haven't felt the full effects of yet, or which haven't fulfilled their intended mission yet for whatever reason or reasons. Number three, next. The revolutions where we can see A to C and can imagine what may come or not. So they're listed today according to where I believe they fall into those three groups, which is entirely <laughs> made up and subjective, otherwise in no particular order. The length of any time I spent talking about it, much less compared to one another, is indicative of nothing else other than me just truly working out my own thinking. So let's start with what I like to call mature revolutions, with the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the USSR. So I'm always entranced by those gifs or gifs or whatever that even semi-accurately show the history of European wars and shifting borders of the last thousand years or even hundred years. These people have been at it for a very, very long time. It's easy to look at the EU and forget how new it really is and how quickly the whole thing has come apart and can come apart even further. It's easy to walk around Paris and forget that most of it was rubble not a long time ago and occupied by Nazis. It's simplistic, but revealing to Google World Step, World Cup starting 11 if Yugoslavia was still a thing. Feel wistful and forget the terrifying violence and turmoil of what happened there from 1918 to more recently. To forget how many tens of millions of Soviets died stopping Hitler, how Putin has been trying to pull the USSR back together for decades, how much London benefited, and specifically the city, uh, from the EU before bailing that the Spanish Civil War was a template for World War II, that Germany was two very different countries for as much of our parents' lives as it has been a unified one. So the world continues to be affected by lingering wounds in Europe, and it seems as if that's really not going to change anytime soon. Next, the internet. My first memory of the internet is from a quiet afternoon at my friend David's house. We were eight or nine, and he had just snuck a large tablespoon of horseradish, uh, unbeknownst to me, onto my tuna fish sandwich. After I nearly died from that attack, uh, and instead of playing with Ghostbusters action figures under this big magnolia tree he had, uh, we did something different. We sat down at his PC and he showed me something that his grandma uses and it was called Prodigy. And it was awesome. The internet is awesome in the sense that it invites a reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder, straight from Merriam-Webster. The internet has enabled electronic health records and the ice bucket challenge and GoFundMe and elected the first black president. From this cozy cradle at ARPANET, the internet enabled Napster and instant messenger and email, and Facebook, iTunes, webcams, streaming, Google, Tencent, Alibaba, Amazon, telemedicine, Match.com, Craigslist, DoorDash, Wikipedia, electronic health records, uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter, WhatsApp, and other social media apps that sometimes ferment insurrections. The internet and the devices that can access it, which simultaneously became necessary and thus ubiquitous over time, it's forever changed who we are, how we spend our time, how we build our economies, how we learn, and how we connect. You get it. But that Connection part's important though, real important. We have to talk about how much the like and share buttons changed human society forever. Those two buttons capitalized 
on our lack of education where there was some, gamified all of our fear and public interactions from a distance through an algorithm that rewarded the most extreme human emotions, building echo chambers and then mobs and then factions and eventually calcifying into an electorate that at best refuses to budge and at worst builds gallows uh, for a president of their own party. So look at it this way. It's one thing if that super drunk guy at your adult softball game tells you there's microchips in vaccines, right? You can drive away from that. It's another when everything you've ever clicked on has led to your screen right now to be a feed of 24 different posts shared by 3,000 plus people just like you, liked by 150,000 people you'd have a beer with that all describe exactly how Brandon put those microchips in there with his own bare hands and probably in the basement of a pizza parlor while Hillary Clinton diddled a kid. That's where we are, and we'll talk about it more below, but if misinformation content farms are a problem now, I can not imagine the shitstorm we're gonna have to deal with once everyone truly gets their hands on GPT-3 and 4 and everything that comes next. Text in the style of any writer you want, including you. Near perfect, or at least perfect enough for an Android Facebook feed, deep fake pictures and audio voices, video of Congress people actually in pizza parlor basements diddling kids. It's not great. And to be frank, I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do about it. So let's talk about 9-11. So much of today's landscape in so many facets can be traced back to that fall morning, which of course itself stemmed from a laundry list of intersecting causes we're not going to get into today. I remember my freshman roommate at college reaching up to my top bunk to shake me awake and tell me to come watch the TV in our common room. That was it. Nothing was ever the same. From the Patriot Act to the war on terror, trillions spent, millions dead, to the rapid and subsequent formation of the Department of Homeland Security, TSA, ICE, mass surveillance, Edward Snowden, the elimination of privacy as we know it, drastically reduced immigration, hate crimes, 9-11 was horrifying and tragic. But not only in how so many innocent people died that day and in the years to come across the world, but in how the backlash affected every part of our lives as we know it, disabling our ability to appropriately contextualize and pay for real ongoing threats. Like, for instance, nobody having uh, healthcare, right? Great. So let's talk about China. And again, like I told you, these are no specific order besides being in the categories they are. China's meteoric rise and some very specific choices changed the world forever as well, and will continue to do so from uh, Tiananmen Square to the one-child policy. And yet, the, the one-child policy started a few years before I was born, but considering, again, I am somehow 40, and now China's population is very large and very old, same population that's been locked up for three years, apparently poorly vaccinated, and is now, right now, being devastated by COVID. That population shrank for the first time in a very long time this year, predictably, a little earlier than they thought. And that means the next 40 years, at least some of which will be helmed by the same increasingly nationalist dictator who was effectively raised by Mao, who oversaw the peak, who built internment camps, a police state, um, and this vast 
military who invested trillions in Africa, we're going to talk about that, who crushed the valuations and spirit of major Chinese internet companies and entrepreneurs alike, just when they're getting started, who's overseeing tenuous real estate market. The next 40 years could be really, really different. This next one actually ties in. I want to talk about the iPhone. The iPhone is here, not just because of what the device can do in, in any given moment, including, but very much not clearly limited to calling people on the phone, but also because of how, at the time, this relatively medium-sized PC and music player company called Apple Computer built out a supply chain in China that changed China and the world. So that supply chain also changed the stock market. It catalyzed an entirely new software and software developer landscape. It enabled these devices, some of which are exclusively by some people used for moving gems around a screen, to be in as many hands as possible, most impactfully as profitably as possible. And where does that leave us? I mean, it actually leaves us in a place where we're having real discussions like, will an aging and desperate China invade tiny Taiwan for its invaluable computer chips, resulting in America and other countries being drawn into World War III? So that is, in part, what the iPhone has done. Let's talk about the end of smoking. So forget the millions of lives lost to tobacco addiction, the terrible but often inevitable lung cancer diagnoses. Forget the lies and the court cases and the settlements. If you're young enough and you never rode in a plane where people smoked, ate a meal or drank beer or whatever in restaurants and bars where people smoked, or sat on the lap like I did of a beloved grandparent as they actively smoked, it is impossible to comprehend what a different world we live in now. But that's good. It shows us how much change there can be. Hopefully comparing what was to what is will help all of us, you may understand some strategies for how we eradicate pollution and plastics and fossil fuels and forever chemicals. But there are forces allied against us. The next two are important here, including Fox News. So as boomers in the U.S. grew older, Fox only grew stronger and together with Facebook, directly, indirectly, whatever, intentionally helped cement birtherism, nationalism, sexism, racism, death panels, Christian fundamentalism, resource exploitation, school vouchers, tax cuts, warmongering, as the backbone of GOP policy, both foreign and domestic. And it set the stage for Newsmax and the Daily Wire and everything else to follow by way of the internet, including Facebook or Meta or whatever you want, which is by some measures on the decline now. Their stock price certainly is. But again, it's all relative because their reach and thus their moat, I guess, it's pretty impossible to quantify, including a third of the known population of the world. But it's provided the most powerful echo chambers and automated reinforcing mechanisms that humanity has ever seen. So that's not something to sniff at. That is still going on. Higher education costs. American voters uh, toe the line pretty damn close, it turns out, to the participated in higher education or not split. And while the causes of that are myriad and, as usual, entirely self-defeating, um, which means we can make choices to not have this be the situation, the prohibitively astronomical cost of higher education is a major reason why a large percentage of voters, in red states in particular, are so susceptible to dis- and misinformation around, by way of Facebook and the internet, elections, vaccines, racism, and more, by way of Russia, by way of China often. Higher education is wildly imperfect, right? And today, many more than ever, it fails to pay off for so many more. 
but something is missing. And the inaccessibility and devastating loans for those that do get to attend only make primary school book banning and the school board bullshit that's gone on so much worse because that's the only education so many kids are ever going to get. Let's stick with online for a second and talk about Google and online advertising in general. Big week for that as it is, turns out. Nothing against Yahoo or AltaVista, but Google's PageRank algorithm changed how we produce, organize, and search for information more than any innovation, frankly, since uh, the printing press. And now, all these years later, as your mobile Google search results page is comprised entirely of ads, truly like pause it and search for something on the Google webpage and, and look how many are ads, it's clear that quarterly revenue growth at all costs means the best result for the consumer isn't always what you're going to get. And again, to be clear, I'm not against online advertising. I've sold plenty of it in past jobs. I've even bought a little bit too here and there for certain projects. Advertising on both Google and Facebook and later now really Amazon paved the way for millions of small businesses to differentiate themselves, to target and drive local traffic, and more broadly, for other businesses, together with Shopify and tons of cash from VCs, to fuel a new direct-to-consumer industry and maybe even crush brick-and-mortar retail just a little bit. Like everything, there's nuance there. So let's talk about Chernobyl. Nuclear power has always been a little bit complicated to handle waste-wise, obviously, and a lot bit wildly expensive to build, 100%. But uh, what happened with Chernobyl and Three Mile Island uh, a few years before really didn't help cement it as safe, at least in the imaginations of so many folks, which is understandable, but it's also too damn bad because despite, again, the very real complications of and trade-offs of nuclear waste and the implications of an actual full-on nuclear meltdown, nuclear energy is measurably as safe as both wind and solar. That's it. Let's talk about Citizens United. I can't even think about this one without getting consumed by rage, I guess. This single decision made the Federalist Society a fully operational battle station and helped to secure through billions in dark money minority rule for people who yeah, it's a blanket statement, but fuck it. Like, genuinely do not care if you live or die, as long as they get to profit through it or from your suffering. And that's associated, again, with Fox and Facebook. And the cloud. Let's talk about the cloud. Up until the year I barely graduated from college, starting a tech company meant finding space for, buying, and then maintaining your own servers. And then, in success, growing your collection somehow. Sometimes they went down. Sometimes you just didn't have enough to you get more. In hindsight, that feels super prohibitive. So Amazon Web Services, or AWS, Google Cloud, and Microsoft uh, Azure changed all of that, enabling anyone to come online with a few clicks of the mouse and a credit card. And also, on the other hand, scale we couldn't possibly imagine in 2006. And importantly, it's the first thing that made Amazon profitable. It still is that way. Let's talk about Obama. As someone who is Obama's super fan for quite a while, and who is now with time and perspective, somewhat less so. The revolution Obama kickstarted, I think, and again, totally my opinion, was less about his profound and real racial and personal impact than other downstream effects. I would argue, and again, probably poorly because it's me, that the cascading effects of the Obama revolution are less about Obamacare's impact, as great as it was, or even how much he helped scale solar, which was incredible, than his campaign and administration's use of social media from 
2006 to 12-ish to communicate and target voters, which was then used to massively detrimental effect in 2016. On the plus side though, all that stuff and the legions of young people who worked for it, who went on to found political startups or communication startups or to run for office themselves. Nuance. Over that similar period is the bull market, the 2010s bull market, the longest in history, paired with basically 0% interest rates and an unheard of amount of competition stifling mergers and acquisitions. It supersized a collection of six companies we talked about a little bit here, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft. Companies you use every single day, whether you know it or not, because often they're hosted by one or the other. Together, those companies, and Fang plus Microsoft, represented at times almost 25% of the S&P's total market cap, which is totally nuts. And if it's not already obvious, again, I kind of hinted at it, those companies are basically entirely and completely dependent on one another through devices and backend services and integrations and all that stuff. Also note, those enormous companies have collectively laid off about 50,000 people in the past few months. Great. Let's talk about in-process revolutions. We don't know where they're gonna go, but they're hitting and they're real. And we still have a long way to go, or we have some fighting to do. Extreme poverty. Well, the world's population has grown by three and a half billion people since I was born. Wow. The percentage of people living in extreme poverty, which is about less than $2 a day, has dropped by about a third to just 12 or 15% or so. And that's incredible. It's credit to the UN, the United Nations for committing to it. And then I guess, doing that, which is incredible. Most of the gains have been in China, in India, which we'll talk about in a sec, where an urban existence with often free elementary school and health checkups drew hundreds of millions of folks out of their otherwise brutal farming rural existence, and meant even more were then born into far more reliable circumstances over the last 40 years. Of course, it's all relative, and now 15% of the 8 billion people we've got is over a billion people living on less than $2 a day with a lot of inflation. And there's still huge parts of Africa and China and India living on less than $5 a day. But it is progress. And, and when we have progress, our goal is to keep adding to it. This is gonna be brief, but I think you get it. Rodney King, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, how many others? Maternal health, COVID deaths, real estate, education, housing, Black Lives Matter. We're not there yet. The cruelty is the point. We got a very long way to go. The Koch brothers, contract with America, Tea Party, Trump, post-Trump, combined with Citizens United, higher education costs, 9-11, the internet, Facebook, the through line of everything above, mostly funded by the Koch brothers and some others, has intentionally eradicated any sort of social capital or shared trust in each other. To say nothing of the institutions we all rely on to have, you know, roads and things like that, now, will House Republican infighting hamper the cause? Hopefully. Will the 2022 midterm results force candidates to back off of draconian abortion laws? I don't know. One thing that's probably not going to change anytime soon is the immense, nearly untraceable billions uh, going into far-right campaigns at every level. And Citizens United unlocked most of that. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the 
INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. On that note, let's talk about abortion. This country is further away from bodily autonomy uh, than we've ever been for, not than we've ever been, but than we've been for quite some time. Today, your very personal and very extensive digital data can reveal whether you're menstruating, or pregnant, and even if you've visited uh, or even driven by an abortion provider. Meanwhile, doctors and nurses are scrambling to understand whether their state Will punish them for providing you care as pregnant people are forced to carry and give birth to babies in an obscenely wealthy country that provides truly piss-poor maternal health. So the fight continues there, and I, I do not know how it's going to go, but we have to keep pushing. Uh, let's come back. Let's talk about uh, India, which is going to have a pretty wild stretch here. It is now possibly the most populous country in the world, soon to be among the top four economies in the world. They're it, the, the country and the people that are stepping up into the spotlight for a lot of reasons. Tens of millions of young, English-speaking, very online Indians have packed up, keep packing up and moving to these massive cities. Country is industrializing, providing an outside investment alternative to China for Apple and so many others. Many of its citizens then are enjoying healthier living standards than ever before. But on the other hand, it is getting hotter for sure. And the reliance on coal and the pollution from industry and transportation certainly haven't abated, which endangered just as many folks as sought relief from the parched, flooded, or both uh, farmlands. So decarbonizing India while managing growth will be a struggle. So compensation from wealthy countries to build India with clean power and clean transportation is essential. That's the price we have to pay. Will Apple and others untangling themselves from China, can they even, will it create Enough jobs to satisfy even a fraction of those folks? 
not on their own, of course, but I think there's a start. 75% of women still aren't able to do paid work for a variety of reasons. Not sure what the plan is there. There's a long-delayed census uh, that would make a big difference to help the government and local governments and corporations and hospitals and relief agencies understand where and how people and how many people to plan for, frankly. Difficult to run administrative straight if you don't know how many people there are. HIV. We've made so many strides uh, to reduce HIV cases across the world. Not without complications, certainly, or controversy, but at the same time, almost 100,000 kids in sub-Saharan Africa die every single year from this virus still. But only half of those diagnosed even get treatment. Again, 100,000 die. Only half of those diagnosed even get treatment because case reduction efforts are mostly focused on stopping transmission. For obvious reasons, young kids don't spread HIV as much as adults. And then, of course, COVID has set back so many global vaccination efforts, including HIV. Let's talk about ESG. ESG is bullshit, but only because it isn't incentivized. We aren't, the people participating in it, funding it, aren't incentivized yet to standardize it. So to define and then agree on what ESG means, or even just E or S or G, much less to devise sticks to punish companies and fund managers who don't aim for something, it's not there yet. Could there be, will there be a better alternative? Maybe, should they be separated? Probably. Does a complete lack of standards but need to burnish reputations among retail investors set the stage for massive greenwashing? Yeah, that's what's going on. But on the other hand, there's straw man arguments like the GOP's profits over politics arguments. Um, it's lazy and it's reductive for a million reasons, but including the fact that a never-ending string of real-world climate disasters which are coming means your investments or millions of insurance policies suddenly called in, the profits that make them go up and to the right are suddenly going to be in question. That's something to consider. So is managing risk not a fairly important part of a company's mission? On the other hand, is following consumer trends or pivoting into massive new markets not advantageous? You know, what about staying one step ahead of new regulations to really see where the puck is going? Can I interest you in an entirely new power sector as a retail investor? private equity, whatever. Investing, as they say, is not just about capital appreciation, which is great, but capital conservation. And as a manager, not exposing millions of people to some pretty bad shit. Speaking of bad shit, let's talk about processed food. This is here in the in-process category, not only because processed food was and probably continues to be the leading cause of obesity in America, I mean, those foods are basically the foundation of the 90s food pyramid because I think we're actually starting to push back, at least on the edges. You can debate food as medicine all you want, and I'm happy to talk about it, but we've been very clearly ignoring the lingering opposite effect. Food as like a societal cancer, basically, eating the U.S. Uh, from the inside out for basically my entire life. Related to ESG, let's talk about net zero. Short but sweet. We know we need to get to actual zero emissions, but net zero has become, I think, the most dangerous corporate and governmental mantra on the planet. As the earlier mentioned, complete lack of standardized terminology required to build regulatory and private investment carrots and sticks keeps the bullshit carbon offsets and emissions flowing, all in the name of burnishing reputations and getting away with something as long as you can. Let's talk about LGBT rights. 
feels like it's 11 steps forward sometimes and seven to 15 steps back, depending on the day. But as more people try to carve space for themselves, we are still seemingly unable to take our foot off the pedal of this fight, to stand down while a bunch of fuckers continue to seek to take that space away from those people. Just monsters who seem flagrantly uninterested in the simple act of just letting someone define for themselves who they are and who they love. We go on. Next, war on drugs, uh, marijuana decriminalization, opioids, psychedelic treatments. Holy shit, we just drink so much in this country. For my entire life, definitely these 40 years, we have encouraged and celebrated and promoted and advertised and embraced alcohol, often to the extreme, and married it with football to make indulgent drinking and violence our national pastime, basically. And I was no bystander for a very long time, sold those ads, participated in it. Meanwhile, though, we imprisoned millions of people, including a couple generations of black men, for marijuana possession, denying children of fathers and then fathers of voting rights and worse, when in the very limited research we've been allowed to do on this Schedule One drug, we're pretty sure, no, no, not confident, that cannabis on the whole is at least less harmful and less addictive than alcohol. And again, it's a low bar, and we have a long way to go to figure that out. I think the tide is turning, but it's messy as every state veers off on its own direction on the path from decriminalization to legalization, retail sales and taxes with justice and equity at the forefront of most of the efforts. So hopefully more research opportunities and data open up in the years to come, um, as is underway with psychedelics, which could become an absolutely vital tool for treating depression and PTSD and hopefully minimizing the distribution and use of opioids. Let's talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Machine learning has been a part of our lives for decades now. It's everywhere, whether you know it or not. It's in every app, it's in every service, uh, from games to mortgages, insurance policies, weather channel, climate models, uh, policing, spyware. Most businesses, certainly not this one, cannot operate without it in some capacity, even if that's limited to, you know, categorizing business lunches in QuickBooks or whatever. Generative AI, the stuff that's been happening in the past few months, from text to pictures to voice and definitely really soon video, man, that's going to have cascading effects throughout the economy and society and politics and writing and movies and marketing. And the algorithms and data behind them, which are imperfect because we're very imperfect, will become normalized commodities. I mean, Apple's building it into the phone. They'll be built into the fabric of these devices and our production and wonderfully helpful in some ways and massively disruptive in others. Um, I'm not sure how we'll respond. We should ask ourselves how we think we should most inclusively and ethically. Speaking of ethics, let's talk about Me Too. Among the very few positives gleaned from social media includes the up and down effort to finally actually rein in and punish some powerful and abusive men. Has it been wildly successful? Of course not. Has it provided for some much needed justice? Absolutely. Is the patriarchy dead? No, not quite, but again, you know, we keep going. Mass shootings. I don't need to say too much here. It's part of our life. Uh, it is fucking inexcusable. And it doesn't happen anywhere else. Recent federal efforts at gun laws are overdue and helpful, but they're a drop in the bucket, and it can't bring any of these kids back or any of these people back. Um, I do believe state and local elections mean a lot here. Um, 
Let's talk about the end of coal. Wow. While my own region of the country is still relatively coal heavy, check it out on electricity maps, uh, we're at about 20% of our power over the past year on a day-to-day -day basis. The astonishing reduction, by the work of so many people, of coal power paved the way, of course, for a bridge fuel, the fossil gas industry that's, yes, reduced overall emissions and pollution exposure. It's never been profitable, and it brought forward a shit ton of methane and honestly forestalled renewable power. Um, but on the other hand, renewable energy. Jesus, solar is by some measure the cheapest energy of all time. Uh, battery costs have come down almost 90%, and many of the world's windiest coastlines and plains will become massive power plants on their own. Now, we've got to really pay attention to land use. We've got to really shove NIMBYism down the socket. We have so much to mine to build all of this, which is controversial and delicate unto itself. But we also just have so much to build and manufacture and distribute from solar panels and polysilicon to massive wind turbines to geothermal everywhere, absolutely essential transmission lines. And those are going to require new progressive policies that, again, we have to keep pushing and passing. So have no doubt, this revolution is here, the technology is here, and many industries will be completely turned over because of it. If we don't do it fast enough, we're going to have more issues like this one, which is Katrina and how we deal with disaster relief. So Katrina seems like a long time ago, but it did set the stage for a new era, not an aberration of climate fueled disasters uh, for more and more dangerous hurricanes, typhoons, wildfires, drought, atmospheric rivers, and the support required to recover for them and to pay for their recovery. So you got new relief NGOs like World Central Kitchen, they're flexible and necessary, and they operate on the same front lines over and over again, and then new ones. You got FEMA floundering, insurance companies are struggling to understand and define who gets coverage and where and for what, and then to pay for the ones they did pass out. While we continue to argue over the cost of mitigation, while short-term recovery costs blow up in Iceland and in aggregation, to say nothing of long-term rebuilding in zones that are most likely going to be affected over and over. Last category is next revolutions, sea level rise. If you are new here, or just generally unaware, which is understandable, take a deep breath. Sea level rise is very real. It's happening. It's happening faster than we predicted every time we check. And with our best current understanding and technology, which are imperfect, it seems as if it's the one overwhelming climate impact we cannot put back in the box, no matter how fast we move, how much we move. So near-term mitigation is underway and necessary in many coastal areas, however costly, as even sunny day flooding in places like Miami or Norfolk uh, become more frequent, prominent, and destructive and costly. But long-term adaptation, because again, we cannot put it back in the box, means honestly reconsidering where we live and build. And that's going to threaten some of our most cherished places, towns, infrastructure, and cities. Let's talk about Africa. Across 54-plus countries and states, Africa's century, like India's, is coming fast. A little behind India, but holy shit. Overall population projections in the future may include 40% of the world's population by the end of the century. Massive western cities uh, on the coast like Lagos, hundreds of smaller cities, growing so fast literally nobody can keep count. 
Um, energy poverty is still a real thing. It's endemic. On the other side of the continent, drought, massive drought, threatens the livability of countries like Ethiopia and Kenya and Somalia. We got a decade of massive loans from China's Belt and Road Initiative that provided for huge infrastructure gains, roads, railroads, entirely new ports, jobs to build and service them. I mean, it's lifted millions of people out of poverty. But we know China's changing. We just talked about it. They're going to stop or slow cutting checks. Massive projects get canceled. Imports fall, exports fall. The debt trap there grows. And I wonder what China's influence will look like then. So cooperation and reliable transportation among neighboring countries themselves is going to be essential in the decades to come to grow continent-wide trade and, and start to relieve and mitigate against the effects of a warming planet. And lastly, the revolution that's always around the corner, biotech, mRNA, AlphaFold. Despite horrific ongoing vaccine inequity, choice we made, mRNA COVID vaccines saved billions of lives after decades of trying to make them safe for us to use, and they are safe. Uh, what's next? Already under development, again, most will fail, though, are versions to tackle Epstein-Barr, universal flu, cancer, HIV, more. Again, will they all work? Probably not. Will some change the world? Fuck yeah. Is that the way science works? Yes. And again, I want to make clear the dichotomy here. I'm a huge fan of what's here and what's coming, but we cannot leave behind the basic public health principles and practices that got us here and did make life so much better for so many people. Hand-washing, trusted community health clinics. We need healthier, more affordable, more accessible foods, clean water and air, better and safer treatments for cancer and giving birth, vastly more housing, half a million more nurses, 10 times the number of nurses and doctors of color. Without those, none of these innovations matter. COVID and so many other revolutions we talked about today have shown us that for biotech and CRISPR to really have a broad effect, or even public health or wellness, or however you want to phrase it, we have to rebuild. Our infrastructure, our societies, our groups, our institutions, our trust. And in some places, build for the first time, right? A fundamental layer of trust among each other, and especially between for healthcare providers and those in need of care, mental health, physical health. We have to regulate what we can and should from food and water and absolutely to indoor air, supplements, cosmetics, pharmaceutical companies, while expanding accessibility and reducing the cost of clinical trials and of lab work to remove bottlenecks and funding for both basic science research and long-shot ideas to help students, adults, and politicians understand how the scientific process actually works, how public health works, how clean energy works why distribution matters. Anyways, that's it. I mean, it's clearly not it. I'm sure I left out a lot. That's my 40 years, I think. But I'm going to pretend that that's it, that this is going to turn off if I don't stop. But rethinking how we think about today and tomorrow is going to be a key for building a better today and tomorrow. And that process isn't always going to be clean or easy so I want to keep an eye on these things to understand how things have rooted themselves in the past, whether we like it or not, how they are in process of doing that now and how they may do so next. That's it. Here's your quick rundown of the news. In health and medicine news, uh, genes from a mother actually shape a baby's microbiome. A bunch of states are suing companies over insulin prices. Huzzah. Clean air in schools could become New Mexico law. 
In climate news, here's what the California drought map looks like after massive rains. A little improved, not all the way. They've found a more sustainable way to grow crops under solar panels. And Biden's Green Energy Bank starts to dole out billions of dollars. In food and water news, New York will ban forever chemicals from clothing by the end of the year, which is a real win. 98% of California's residents don't have flood insurance. And what happens when the Great Salt Lake disappears? In Beep Boop news, T-Mobile gave up 37 million customer accounts to hackers again. U.S. law enforcement agencies have access to 150 million bank transactions. And Russia's increasingly going after Ukraine's mobile phone network, which is a real dick move. And lastly, in COVID news, can we stop long COVID before it starts? That's it for this week. Hit subscribe to get next week's newsletter straight to your feed. To go deeper, of course, visit importantnotimportant.com slash newsletter. Thanks for being a part of our community. We're excited to be back. And thanks for giving a shit. Have a great weekend.